Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, good morning again. Lovely to be with you all and uh, sharing in worship. Thank you, Imogen and team, leading us so beautifully. Uh, Just great to have one of my favourite hymns, songs. I came late to the church family as a 19, 20-year-old, so my my hymnody is uh, not that extensive, but it does include um, Come Thou Fount of Blessing. And uh, it's a beautiful song and just enjoyed really singing that and the others too. Well... um, I'm going to pray and then I want us to jump into this, uh, this text this morning. Uh, who's read the book of Nehemiah? Don't have a show of hands, but just ask yourself quietly, who's read the book of Nehemiah, Ezra? Give me a nod. Yeah, one or two. Now, a lot of you, I'm sure, many of you. So it's, uh, it's a bit out there. We're going to start this morning quite wide and then hone down into Nehemiah. Um, but let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for this, your word from your people, uh, the people of Israel uh, through the old covenant. Thank you that this book, Nehemiah, uh, takes us to a, a really difficult and dark time in the period of Israel and also uh, brings us to a point of hope about what you were doing then. Uh, and what you were planning to do through Israel beyond this time of devastation, of disgrace, of being ashamed as a people, broken down Jerusalem in ruins. Uh, Lord, teach us from your word. Uh, Lord, help us understand today what it is you want us to hear. I pray for every person here, Lord, or listening online. I pray that we would all take something from this word today and apply it to our lives, that we would listen attentively to your word, Lord, to these scriptures, uh, and that you would remind us of what we know, uh, that you would teach us what we don't know and need to know, uh, Lord, and that you would correct our thinking where it needs correcting and to be brought into alignment with your heart, your purposes, and your word. Lord, we are listening and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Amen. Well, it's been good to be part of this journey the last eight months. Uh, I've been meeting pretty much every week with, uh, with Dave Shepherd and Ben Nowak and Steve Polglace from our church and myself uh, about this amalgamation process. I understand churches. I've been around them for a while. So some of you might be thinking, is there an amalgamation process going on? That happens in churches. We, we are in the thick of it sometimes as leaders and we, we can forget to communicate, but hopefully information's been coming out. I know at Mount Barker we've been you know, pummeling people with lots of information and it's been an exciting journey, though a, a really full-on journey in many ways. Uh, I came over to the hills with Amanda. We had a sense of you know, a bit more of a country lifestyle. We were living in a city, Melbourne, pretty much part of a very busy um, church community for 10 years in Kew, um, which is uh, right in Richmond by the Yarra River there. So we, we were really 
looking forward after a really intense 10 years to just you know, come to a you know, quieter country lifestyle, lovely country church, Mount Barker, and just kind of ease into a gentle rhythm. And it's just been nuts. It's just been nuts, really. It's been crazy. And God's been really stretching me in it as well. Um, been thinking about that proverb, um, might be 16, chapter 16, two, man belongs to the plans of the heart, from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. It kind of means, you know, you have your own ideas of how you see your life unfolding or what you think should happen or you want to happen. But God actually has the, the last say and the final say, and uh, that's the most important thing. So it's been a, a good journey, though it has been challenging, and good to get to know Nick as well, uh, Nick Van Ruth. Nick sent me a text this week, and I didn't know it was him because I hadn't had his phone number in my phone yet. And so I got this text, and it was about the service, and it was signed off, um, Nick Oni. And I was like, oh, it must be like another Nick, Nick Oni. He's leading the worship this week. He's getting in touch. And it was only a little bit later when Nick sent me another message. I realised it was Nick Van Ruth and that it was Nick one because I'm Nick Tui. <laughs> and I'm like, nice one, Nick. That is clever. Um, I'm pretty sharp with, with, with humour and, you know, but that, that just got under my radar and uh, missed it completely. So... It's good to get to know Nick too the last little while. Um, now, Nick did tell me I had an hour and a half to preach, so um, I'll get straight into it, but <laughs> not that long. Um, let's look at the Bible as, a, as the cosmic story of God's um, purposes that are unfolding in history to restore and recover his whole creation, the entirety of human life from sin and its effects God's purpose is ultimately revealed and accomplished in Jesus Christ and implemented by the Spirit in and through the church. This Bible story is the true story of the world and it is a different story from all other cultural stories. I just want to say that right up front. We're going to start with a big picture. The Bible tells a story of humanity, of the world and what God is doing God's people, what God plans to do. But there's a whole heap of stories in our world. There's a whole heap of stories in our culture. And every week, every one of you, myself included, are steeped and macerated and marinated. There's a couple of chef words for you. In the stories of the world. And we come to church for a little time on Sunday and hear a bit of the Bible, hear a bit of teaching and think that somehow that's enough. But actually, there are competing stories all the time that we are dealing with as God's people, uh, and we need to be aware of that. Leslie Newbigin, the great missiologist, said, if this biblical story is not the one that controls our thinking, then inevitably we shall be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. We shall become increasingly indistinguishable from the pagan world of which we are a part. If we're not aware of the competing stories around us, in us, uh, week in, week out, and if we lose connection with the biblical story, we just kind of meld into the world around us and we won't look any different or be any different as God's people. So I'm going to do a quick Bible flyover. I just assume that not everyone who comes to church is a believer, not everyone who comes to church um, knows their Bible, and that's okay. Uh, Non-believers and the biblically, biblically illiterate are very welcome in church. Um, I also, as a pastor for 25 years, know that sometimes 
as Christians, we can also neglect our Bible and the big story as well. So little fly over here, the Bible is, is a few main parts. It's, it's, a, it's a few key stories that need to kind of be held to understand where we are at any sort of point in the scriptural journey. If you are a Lord of the Rings fan, perhaps you know there's been like six movies, The, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, if you brought your friend along to like episode two, you know, The Two Towers, and it was like three quarters of the way through the movie and you said, come and watch this with me. They're going to sit there and go, what's a hobbit? You know, who's Frodo? Like, what is this story about? Who's Saron? They're just going to have no idea where they are in the story. So biblically, it's helpful sometimes just to get a bit of an overview. Where are we in this story with Nehemiah? Well, we're in Israel. Um, but God creates the world, beautiful, perfect heavens and earth and creates humanity as, as his co-regents, as his overseers of of this beautiful creation. They have freedom. They can relate to God and enjoy His beautiful creation and and serve Him and and enter into that life of, of perfect union with God and oneness with the creation He's created, ruling over it. And then we know what happens. There's this kind of mysterious, dark spirit comes into the picture. The human beings believe a lie. They believe a different story than the one God had told them. And as they believe that different story, which is a false story, it's a lie, they fall away from what God has for them and they lose that position of honour that they had under God. They fall. So of creation, we have the fall. So the rest of the Bible is basically Genesis 3 onwards is dealing with this fall. What happens now? What does God do? What's God's plan to get his people back, to get his family back, to restore the world? Well, he calls a guy called Abraham. Chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15, he says, Abraham, would you be my friend? I haven't got many friends in the the world at the moment. Would you be my friend? And I want to use you, Abraham, to build a whole new people, a new nation. I want to use you, Abraham, to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And Abraham says, yeah, okay, I'll be your friend. And they make an agreement, a covenant, and Abraham goes on and has his, you know, you know the story if you've been around church a while, bit of a mishap there um, with the maidservant, but eventually has the child of promise and Israel comes forward and the nation of Israel is born. They get out of Egypt. Should only take a few weeks. They're 40 years in the desert, wander around. They're unfaithful. They keep getting it wrong. That's kind of the Israel story. It's it's this story of coming back to God, getting it wrong, coming back to God. And then Israel gets into their promised land and they say, you know what, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. They're really cool. They've got kings. And God says, but I'm your king. They're like, yeah, but we want like a real king, you know, with like a sword and armour and like a really cool king, God. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a king. So from there, Israel just keeps going up and down. There's some good kings, there's some bad kings, there's some okay kings and eventually um, they get to a point where uh, I'm just going to fly over that um, passage from Luke 24 and go to the Old Testament flyover, Tim. They get to a point, this is the the kind of pathway I've just described to you. Abraham's, you know, about 2000 BC, then the people of Israel, 1500 come out of Egypt 1500 BC or BCE, if you prefer that. About 1000 BC, King David reigns 40 years, builds up Jerusalem. God says, you can't build the temple because you've got blood on your hands. You're a warrior. 
But God calls his son Solomon, by the way, his son that he had with Bathsheba through an illicit affair, and by the way, he also had Bathsheba's husband put to death. That's another story, um, but it's part of Israel's story of falling short, sinning, doing what God wants and so forth. So Solomon builds the temple. Israel is this powerhouse nation. It's one of the strongest nations in the world. It has a powerful king. People come from all over the known world to see Solomon, to see his, hear his wisdom, to see his wealth. Uh, the temple is magnificent. It's one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Israel is glorious. It's a powerful nation. And then over a period of time, God sends them prophets and says, look, if you guys keep getting things wrong, if you keep messing up, it's not going to go well. So come back to me. So people go, okay, we'll stop worshipping idols and other gods. We'll come back to God. And then a little while later on, they wander off again, start rejecting God, start rebelling against him. God says, come back to me, come back. Because if you keep rebelling and going your own way, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for the nation. This goes on and on and on. And then in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel is captured by the Assyrians. They just come in and just kind of take off these 10 tribes. That, that part of the kingdom's gone. People are like, well, that's pretty full on. But at least we've still got Judah. We've got the, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken off. And then God says to the people the same thing, kings, obey me, do what's right, listen to my laws, love me with all your heart, don't worship other gods, don't wander off. And the people go, okay. And then they wander off. This goes on and on. Good kings rise, reform things. Bad kings rise, lead the people astray. This goes on and on. And God says, if you guys keep doing this, if you keep going away, if you keep rebelling, if you keep rejecting me, there's going to be disaster for the nation. They're like, yeah, whatever. Eventually the disaster comes. 586 BC, the Babylonian army, Nebuchadnezzar, comes in, completely sacks the city. This is glorious Jerusalem. This is powerful Israel. And the whole city is razed to the ground. They destroy the temple. They rob all the gold, all the furnishings. They pull it down. They destroy the homes and the palaces. They pull the walls down. They burn them. They utterly destroy this city in 586. And they take the leftover people. They've already taken a whole bunch of them about 20 years before this into Babylon to serve the Babylonian king. And they leave the very poor and destitute there in the land to farm, do the vineyards, to make the produce, to send to the Babylonians and to pay their taxes. So the whole nation is completely wiped. Can you imagine that? Imagine a powerful, wealthy nation, prosperous and peaceful, one day lying in ruins, completely devastated. No nation imagines that. But over history we see that that happens to nations and it happened to Israel. So 536, there's a bit of good news here, 538, sorry. The Persians overtake the Babylonians and put them to flight. And Cyrus, King Cyrus, is a more enlightened king. He has a more inclusive foreign policy, which says that if you worship other gods than the Persians, you're allowed to worship those gods. You can rebuild your temples. And so he lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem. And they begin to rebuild the temple. It takes them about 20 years. 
um, which isn't bad when you think about it for a building project for a church. I know some churches that have had building projects for like 30 years, so it's not too bad, 20 years. They get the temple built, but then they're in this period of destitution. There's still this divide between the wealthy Jewish people in the city and the poor people. They've got no walls surrounding them. They're at risk and they're vulnerable. They're still in shame and disgrace as a people. Um, And this is where Nehemiah comes in about 100 years later. So here we are at Nehemiah. It's taken a little while to get there. But I hope you get the big flyover story of how we got to Nehemiah and then what his role is in all of this. He's been living in Babylon for forever um, in, in the Persian kingdom. Interestingly, seeing, seeing Debbie's um, list of countries up there, um, Iraq was ancient Babylon and Iran is ancient Persia, which is where these events are happening. It's interesting today that God's people are still being crushed and persecuted in those nations, even two and a half thousand years later, just as an aside. By the way, when you shared that, Debbie, I had two main uh, reactions. One was just sorrow and horror at the persecution of Christian people in the world. The second one was, am I a Christian? (laughs) Like, what have I suffered? What have I actually been through? I think having to get up early, you know, in the morning to pray, that's like hard. I'm doing my bit for Jesus, you know, I'm really suffering. So it really convicted me, that sense of, Nick, come on, man. People are really paying a price to be a Christian in the world, to follow Jesus. Get it together, man. Let's get going. Don't pity yourself and don't think you're doing it hard in this culture because you're not. Okay. Nehemiah was comfortable He was comfortable. He was maybe a sixth, seventh generation person born in Babylon, in Persia. His parents, his grandparents, his great-grandparents, his great-great-grandparents, his great-great-great-grandparents were probably born in Babylon, in Persia. Jewish people, they were faithful. They were devout. We'll see that in his prayer in a moment. Nehemiah is a devout Jewish man. It's interesting to ask how did he, how did his family keep their faith alive in Babylon. Okay, they were away from their church worshipping community, if you like. They couldn't offer sacrifices. They couldn't attend the festivals. They couldn't make atonement for sin. They couldn't sing their songs that they loved, their worship songs. They couldn't gather together for worship. And yet somehow they remained faithful, these remnant of Jewish people. And I think just quickly, that's where the family became really important in Judaism. And I think it's very important for the Christian church today. If you think you can bring your kids just along to church once a week, give them a little bit of Bible, and that's going to be okay to help form and shape them in their faith. It's just not. Kids need formation and they need um, encouragement and, and the home needs to be a place of faith, of prayer and devotion. You can't just farm out kids and young people to church for a couple of hours a week and think that's going to be enough to help shape them in their own faith and thinking. So I think the Jews taught us that in this exile period. He's comfortable. He's a cupbearer to the king, which is like chief of staff to the president. It's a very privileged position. He would have lived quite well off, probably in very well-furnished quarters. Uh, He had secure employment, though it was risky because if you upset the king, you could be put in jail or put to death. So there were some risks with the job. But he was a senior person in this um, administration of King Artaxerxes, a very powerful uh, king and very powerful role for Nehemiah to be in. So he's quite comfortable. Dave Shepherd said a couple of weeks ago at Mount Barker when he preached, um, but while his home was in Persia, his heart was in Jerusalem. 
and eventually he hears this report and uh, he's, he's challenged by it. But I'll just say right up front, Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a prophet. A little while earlier, 20 to 30 years earlier, Ezra the priest has gone to Jerusalem to reform the worship, to build the temple. Nehemiah's an administrator. He's a civil leader. He's almost a political leader. He's not a prophet or a priest. And it made me think about this whole amalgamation process that Dave Shepherd and I are pastors. We've been a part of it. But I've just so valued having Steve Polglace from our church at Mount Barker. Uh, he's got an engineering background. And Ben Nowak from here, who's got a, an engineering and a legal background. Just how valuable those two have been. If it had just been four pastors, we would never have got here. Um, pastors do, we do a good job. We're good guys. You know, we, we're doing all right. But if it just had been four pastors trying to work this out, it wouldn't have happened. Those guys have added this, this motor of, of intellectual administration capacity, which has just made this proposal that's going out today possible, as have the discernment teams. We've had about 15 from each church community plowing through this detail. So I really value the, the need to have a range of people in the church community serving and involved. And, and I know particularly Ben's, um, I worked out the other day, I've had about at least 120 hours of meetings this year um, with this amalgamation stuff and Ben's been at a lot of them. And he's powered through immense amount of material and, and work as well. So I know it's, it's come at a cost um, for him and his family to, to bear that. But I'm grateful, like Nehemiah, that we've had some non-priests, pastors, prophets on that team to really help get things going. So shout out there for Ben, who I think um, Ben and Lauren worship here, don't they? Yes. Nehemiah, though, is comfortable, but he hears this report from his brother Hanani. We don't know if it's his Jewish brother or his actual brother. Just a little bit of history fact there for those who are you know, history buffs. They found some papyrus in Egypt from this time of period of history. There was a Jewish remnant in Egypt, the Elephantine papyrus, and there was a governor of Israel in there called Hanani. And so we don't know if it's this the same guy. There might have been a few Hananis, but take that or leave that. It's just a bit of free trivia information about history. Nehemiah, here's the report from Hanani. He's crushed. He's broken by it. Now, why now? Nehemiah would have known for years that Israel is a mess, Jerusalem's a mess. He's quite comfortable in his high-level position next to the king. Why is he crushed all of a sudden? I'm not sure. But I think God has done something in his heart. And I think for us as people sometimes like hearing those reports this morning, there's times we have to let things into our heart. We, one of the stories we're told in our culture is ultimately, you know, live for yourself, do your own thing, be an individual, just focus on your own life. Now and then we just have to let these stories come in of pain, of brokenness, of hurt, and let them touch us. It's hard because it's overwhelming, uh, of course, but Nehemiah somehow lets this in. God does something and he, he's crushed by what he hears. He's broken by the plight of his people. And there's a Psalm 137 which is written in this time of exile. And if you're old enough like me to remember, um, Boney M did a cover of it years ago. It was called By the Rivers of Babylon. Anyone know that song? I'm not going to ask you to sing it, but it was a really good song. Um, it's from Psalm 137. By the, this is the Jews speaking. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. 
as we remembered Jerusalem. We wept as we remembered Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says here, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. He couldn't stand. He was broken by the actual reality of Jerusalem and his people. He was broken by it. And I thought about that in relation to the church, the people of God in the Adelaide Hills. Now, we're not, you know, completely annihilated or anything, but let's have a look at some stats from the recent census. Um, these are from Mount Barker District Council, but I checked the Adelaide Hills area and they're pretty much the same. Um, 30 years ago, 66% of people in the Adelaide Hills said they were Christian. It's about 37% now, so it's next time it'll half um, in five years. Over the last 10 years, Anglicans have declined by 26%, the Uniting Church by 33%, the Lutheran Church by 26%, the Presbyterian Reform by 34%, the Salvation Army has declined by 64% in the Adelaide Hills, the Church of Christ by 24%. Now, there's some good news, and we're in that good news, Baptists. So hang in there. Catholics, no change. God bless the Catholics, solid as a rock. Pentecostals grew by 17%. Personally, I think they could have done better than that. Um, Non-denominational grew by 33%. The Baptists, go Baptists, grew by 28%. Come on, give yourselves a hand there. Um, so there's some, there's some news in there of growth. There are, there are people becoming Christians. But I worked out if you add those three growth groups together over the last 10 years, that's about 570 people have become Christians or joined a church community over the last 10 years, which is about one per week. Okay, it's, it's small, but we're, we're adding them one per week. So we've got some work to do. But the interesting thing here is 38% of people in Australia claim to be non-religious in the census. That's the overall Australian figure. In SA, it's 45%. So as a state, we're slightly more pagan. And in the Adelaide Hills, it increases to 53.7%. Actually, that's Mount Barker District Council. I checked the Adelaide Hills Council and it's 54.2%. So it's even higher on this side of the tracks. Yeah, half a percent. So that, that really shows you that our culture is de-Christianizing. Whether it was a Christian nation, you know, we can get into that at some point. I don't think we ever were a Christian nation, but we were Christianized. And there was some alignment between what we taught and thought and felt in churches on Sundays and what the wider culture kind of accepted as well. That The stories aligned at some points. More and more, though, those stories are not aligning. And more and more people are saying, actually, yeah, that's not my story. And that's a challenge, but it also is an opportunity. Dave Shepard said at Mount Barker, are we stirred up in our emotions to see the ruins restored, to see the church be what God created it to be, to see the kingdom of God advancing and taking ground, to see broken, lost lives finding hope in Jesus. And I'm so thankful that, you know, 30 years ago, a, a church in the Adelaide Hills reached out to a, a broken, at-risk young person like me who just about ruined my life. I was um, at the point of suicide at 19 and thankfully there were some Christians in my workplace and Christians who were praying for young people who outed themselves um, if you are a Christian in the workplace, don't be afraid to out yourself because there was a single um, mum in my workplace who washed dishes. Her name was Lynn and she never knew I became a Christian, but she was the first person to start to share about Jesus to me. Uh, while she washed dishes and while I cooked, we were in the same kitchen most days in this satellite kitchen at McLaren Vale at a winery and she began to share her faith with me. So if you are a Christian in the workplace, I know it's challenging, but uh, there might be someone there like me that needs to know that you are a Christian. 
Um, the really difficult thing for Nehemiah and the people of Israel is that, let me ask you a question, who pulled down the walls of Jerusalem and who destroyed the city? Let's have a guess. Technically, it was Babylon, the Babylonians, but that's not what the Jews believed. Listen to the prayer from the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. Listen to what he says. This is, if you read Lamentations, it's heart-wrenching. I read it the other day. I literally almost felt sick as I read it thinking about what it was referring to in Jerusalem, what happened to them. It is so such a lament it is so painful this is what he says the Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary he has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy the Lord determined to tear down the wall around Jerusalem around daughter Zion which is a tender name for Jerusalem he stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying he made ramparts and walls lament and together they wasted away it was God that did this, not the Babylonians. They were the means by which he brought judgment on his people for their decades and centuries of rebellion and sinfulness and idolatry. And that's what hurt them so much. And Nehemiah feels that. And so he confesses. He confesses his sins he confesses the sins of his people that caused them to be in exile. But remember, Nehemiah wasn't there. He wasn't there for perhaps five or six generations. He, he didn't make all the mistakes back then that caused them to be in exile. He wasn't part of it. And that should give us a way of understanding. Sometimes as a people, we may not have done the deeds ourselves, but even a church community can have a his, history that is painful or sinful. And as part of that church community, we may not have been part of that 20, 30, 40 years ago, but we acknowledge that that happened and we're part of that confessing community that acknowledges the sin. And Nehemiah does. He, he confesses his sins. But when he prays, he prays biblically. He knows the Bible. He reminds God of his covenant. He reminds God of his promises. And that's so important for us as Christians that we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures so we know how to pray. We know who God is. We know what he's like. We know what he wants to do. And Nehemiah knows how to pray because he knows the Scriptures. He reminds God of his covenant. He declares God's sovereignty over all things. He reminds God of what Moses said. But he confesses the sins. We Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed. And he does this for a period of four months. He fasts and prays for four months before he goes in to see the king. And he reminds um, God of his covenant. He says, Lord, yes, we have sinned. Yes, we are in exile. Yes, we've done wrong. We're ashamed. We're disgraced. But he says this. Remember, Lord, what you told Moses? As if God doesn't remember what he told Moses. God's like, hang on, let me think. I'll just check my notes. Of course God remembers. God's omniscient. He knows everything. If you are unfaithful, Moses said, um, God, you said through Moses, I will scatter you among the nations. But Lord, remember this. If you return to me, you said, Lord, if we return and obey your commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farther, farthest horizon, I will gather them. And I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he reminds God of his promises. And we need to do that at times in our prayers as well. 
I love what um, Charles Fensham says about the Jews, how they understand their history. God is the God of history and His will is revealed through the historical process. Everything that happened in the past to Israel is interpreted as the will of God. Their moments of decline and their moments of success are ascribed to His will. Hence, the Lord not only determines the history of His own people, but also fulfills His will through the mighty kings of foreign nations. We might look around the world now and kind of go, wow, look what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and, you know, North Korea and all these rulers and powerful nations kind of agitating, you know, ungodly nations, if you like, rulers. And we're like, what's going to happen? What's going on? Well, the Jews got this. And Nehemiah says it in his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, God is over and above this. He's able to bring your life your faithful following of him, our church communities, the body of Christ, the people of God, he's able to bring us along in through the midst of world events, no matter what's happening. He will fulfill his purposes. He will establish his kingdom. This is going to happen. And we shouldn't think world events are just kind of random happening over here. God is working through them and he's using kings like Artaxerxes and others to achieve his purposes. So Nehemiah gets clarity. And he gets a sense of, I've got to do something. He fasts, he prays for four months, but he's like, I've got to do something. And he works out a plan in that four months. He works out what he's going to do. And he, he approaches the king, Artaxerxes. Now, keep in mind that Artaxerxes stopped the rebuilding of the wall 20 years earlier because he was threatened by Israel, Jerusalem growing too big. So he personally stopped the rebuilding of the wall. So Nehemiah is going to go into the presence of this man and he has a plan. He's going to ask him for help, for not just permission to leave to rebuild the wall, but, hey, I need some timber too. Oh, by the way, I need an armed escort. And by the way, I need some letters of authority. He's going to ask all this of the king that was opposed to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So he prays for four months, but he gets clarity. He's got a plan. And then he gets courage. He gets the courage to go in to speak to the king. And the king sees that he's sad. Maybe he's tried so hard for four months not to let his face be sad, but this day he just lets it go. And the king says, what's up, Nehemiah? That's what Persian kings used to say. And Nehemiah says, well, you know, of course I'm sad. How could I not be sad when the, the city of my fathers, when my fathers are buried, is in ruins? Now, I just want you to see how brilliant this is. Nehemiah taps into a cultural connection with the king. Have you ever seen the pyramids? Yeah? Do you know what they are? They're tombs. People in this day venerated their dead. They worshipped and venerated their dead. They built massive tombs for them. So when Nehemiah says, the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, that would have reached right into the king's heart. This is horrific. This is shameful. This is horrendous. So he finds a point of connection with the king. And in missiological terminology, we call that contextualization. We find points as Christians with the gospel where we can connect with our culture. Uh, not necessarily just tell them what we want to tell them, but find ways of hearing what's going on in their culture, the, the ways the gospel speaks to them. And so he reaches to the king's heart and the king says, ultimately, yeah, okay, go. I'll give you everything you need. He has courage. And I was thinking about this recently in our culture. We're not um, persecuted to the point of, 
violence and suffering and death, but we are persecuted ideologically in our culture and we need to be aware of that. I think these guys, the Manly Seven recently, I've called it resisting Babylon and we all are going to have to do this more and more and as Christians in this culture. Uh, Manly forward Hamoli Olaka Atu called his parents on the night that they were had to decide should we play in this round and, and wear the, the rainbow jersey or as a Christian I don't want to do that, um, should we not play? And his parents said, follow your heart. And this is what he said, I don't know what else to say. I hope everyone just respects our decision and moves on. My faith comes first before anything. It is who I am. Now, it could have cost him his job, right? And Nehemiah is at the same point. He's at a point where he has to no longer be comfortable in the king's palace. He has to choose to align himself with his broken people. He has to make a stand. And that'll come to everyone at some point. And it should come to you when you become a Christian. You're making a stand. You're saying, I throw my lot in with with the King of Kings, with Jesus. He is first and foremost in my life. Whatever may come, and that heart-wrenching story to hear about that Chinese pastor basically said, I could lose everything in saying that I will not forsake or abandon Jesus, everything, but I won't do that. And that's what Nehemiah does. This is what uh, this rugby player did. We have to have the courage to see that that's going to happen more and more as we move on in our culture. Um, I'll say this about Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows this. It might be comfortable in Babylon or the Persian palace, but there's no ultimate security or hope there. Where is the Babylonian kingdom? Where is the Persian kingdom? It's gone. God's kingdom's still moving on. Hope is only with God's people, with God's purposes. His personal revival of faith leads him to align himself more fully with God's people and God's purposes. Opening our hearts to the ruins around us will do that. When we let the hurt of others in, the suffering of people in, it will move us to pray in action. And prayer uh, moves us to align ourselves with God and his purposes too. I'm just going to jump over that prayer quote because uh, I realise I'm getting towards the end here. Now, one thing that is really, I think, powerful about this story is that the Israelites suffered for 150 years by the time the walls were rebuilt, 150 years has gone past since the city was destroyed. They bore their sin, their shame, their suffering, publicly humiliated among the nations for a century and a half. People knew that Israel was the one that served the, the one true God and they would mock and laugh, where's your God now? Look at Jerusalem, it's a ruins. You who are going to be the glory of all the earth, through whom salvation would come to the nations. Where's your God now, Israel? They bore that for 150 years. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says about the one who bore our shame and our disgrace. It was the Lord's will to crush him, just as it was the Lord's will through Babylon to crush Israel for their sin. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Around 450 years after Nehemiah, someone would walk through those same city gates 
most likely the sheep gate, and then also walk out bearing a Roman cross to a place called Golgotha outside the city. This time, not to rebuild the city, but to redeem the world. What Nehemiah started to rebuild the city so that God's purposes could come, the Messiah could come, what he started, Jesus finished. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the city and the temple so the presence of God could return. But Jerusalem was broken again and destroyed once more. But Jesus' body was broken for us so the presence of God could return. The relationship could be restored. All of Nehemiah's work eventually came to an end in AD 70. The temple was rebuilt under Herod. It's all wiped out. The work that Jesus has done is eternal, unshakable and unbreakable. Nehemiah paid a price to rebuild Jerusalem, but Jesus paid it all for you and for me. So we don't have to bear the shame, the disgrace of our sin, that we can be free because he bears it for us. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. But for us, Jesus bore the weight of our shame, the guilt of our sin in his body on the tree. And then as Nehemiah built a new city, rebuilt the city, Jesus is rebuilding or building a new city, a new heavens and an earth. And in Revelation 21, it says this, the Apostle John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the Jerusalem in the Middle East. I saw the new Jerusalem, the one God has built, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's our destiny as his people. That's the home and the city God is building for us in and through Jesus. And he calls us to be the ones to go out with that message to invite and to call others to repentance, to the forgiveness that Christ offers. And I love this last picture. I want you to see it in these two contrasting verses. It's a bit hard to read perhaps, but I'll read it. Nehemiah quotes Moses in his prayer and Moses said, if you are unfaithful as God's people, God will scatter you among the nations. Do you know what Jesus said was the exact reverse? As my faithful people, I will scatter you among the nations. Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We are a sent people. We are sent out to take the seed of the gospel, to take the good news of Christ in your workplaces. Again, I'm so thankful for a Christian outing themselves in the workplace. I don't know what would have happened if she didn't take a, a risk to open her heart and life to me and share her faith all those years ago. We are the sent ones. As Nehemiah was sent to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus came and finished the work. All the Jews gathered back to Jerusalem 
But Jesus from Jerusalem said, get out of here, people. Go out into all the world. Proclaim this good news to all nations. And that's our job, people. That's what he's called us to do in the Adelaide Hills, in Adelaide, South Australia, Australia and beyond. And why wouldn't we serve our king with faithfulness and obedience? Let me pray as the team comes up. Lord, there's a lot to soak in and hear from Nehemiah, but we thank you that ultimately you didn't let your people be destitute and disgraced, that you had a plan, that even though they had all those decades of shame and humiliation, of disgrace, you brought them back. You rebuilt that city, Lord. And in that very city, our Lord Jesus would come and he would walk into that temple and he would cleanse it and he would walk out of those gates, those same gates Nehemiah would walk through. He would walk out of those gates carrying a cross for us to die for our sin and our shame so that we don't have to bear years and decades of guilt and shame and suffering and disgrace. He bears it for us. This is a beautiful message. This is the story of stories. This is the story that we proclaim this morning, our God, that Jesus Christ has rebuilt the ruins of our lives. He has borne in his own body the sin, the disgrace, the judgment that we deserved. He has taken that into himself and he is rebuilding our lives, not as actual stones in the wall of Jerusalem, but as spiritual stones, living stones in the temple of God in the new heavens. Lord, we thank you. Give us strength and courage to take this message, to share it, to take it to heart, Lord, and to know we are the ones called to tell this story, the true story, your story, his story. Father, send us out today in Jesus' name equipped and heartened to share this good news. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.